she she came and she asked me could she pray with me. And I was like, well, ain't nobody else visiting me. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, hey. Yeah, you don't know what I get. So take your time. Say one of them long ones y'all do. <laughs> the Magic Hours podcast. I am your host, Zoe Flowers, and I'm so excited for today's guest. So today I am speaking to Tonir Kane, and Tonir works tirelessly to raise the awareness about trauma-informed care around the world. She has trained providers in all 50 states. Tonir is an advocate and educator, speaking all over the world on trauma, addiction, incarceration, homelessness, substance abuse, and mental health. Her work has been used as a model in other countries for the establishment of their trauma-informed care protocols. So I am super excited for this conversation. Y'all know I like to have this podcast, highlight people I know well, and people that I don't know, you know, at all, and people that I know just a little bit. So because this is, I think, our second, yeah, my second conversation um, with Tonair, I'm very, very excited to hear everything <laughs> that she wants to share with us today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. So glad to have you here. So why don't we just start with, you know, how you got into the work that you're doing now, you know, take us back to the beginning. Well, so um, I kind of stumble on this work um, because I'm very passionate about trauma survivors. You know, most people are passionate about something because they had experienced it. Um, and I am one that experienced trauma. Um, and I understood how, you know, trauma tr changed my life. And so I'm, I'm one to, I'm one of those people that is making sure that there's a lot of awareness around how trauma impacts the individual. Um, and mine's, you know, because my, um, trauma started very early on, um, at age nine, um, when I was, when sexual abuse started and, um, and I already experienced neglect and abandonment from my mother who was a single mom and I was the oldest of 10 and, you know, she couldn't nurture and take care of us or whatever happened to her. Hmm. And from that, you know, living in that environment where we was hungry all the time, we, she, you know, sometimes she didn't even come home to check on us or feed us and, just all those things. And even when Department of Social Services stepped in, when I was probably around age 11, you know, um, and, and what I try to help the system to understand, especially that child protective services system, is that, you know, if if you're going to help a child, if, you know, you, you're saying that your job is to protect the child physically, should you not protect the child emotionally and psychologically? Because for me, um, one of the most devastating things was being separated from my sisters and brothers so abruptly mm -hmm. and, and my mother also. And, you know, the system wasn't, wasn't, the system disregard children in that process. It, it hasn't done much to change to date. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Right. And so, you know, the only thing the social worker could seem to say to me was, don't cry, it's going to be okay. You know, it, and there was no compassion and, and didn't validate my fears, like maybe saying something like, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. You must be scared out of your mind. And then prepare me for what was going to happen next by telling me they were about to take me to a total stranger's house. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that just gave, gave me another layer of trauma. Um, then, you know, by age 14, I had been end up with a family member for three years and I started feeling safe for the first time in my life because no one was touching me and no one's teasing me. But she showed me how to properly wash myself clean. She fed me. She sent me to school on time every day, and I was doing well. But as children, children desire is to be connected to the people they supposed to be connected to. Mm-hmm. My mother came back around age fourteen um, to get me. I went because you know she said she loved me, and and I really couldn't remember my mother telling me that any time in my life. But by the time I got back to her, she had three more kids and um, she ended up, you know, beating me in front of everyone in the neighborhood. And I realized she didn't want me back because she loved me. She needed a babysitter. I was older now and I can be left with the kids. And um, so I didn't know how to live with her. I knew I couldn't live with her and I didn't want to live without her. So I did what I thought the only thing a 14-year-old could do, and that was to commit suicide. And... Because I overheard someone in my life say, if you take a bottle of pills, you'll die. And I took a whole bottle of pills in hopes of dying. And I uh, ended up in the emergency room, of course. And, you know, they listened to my mother and didn't ask me anything. And I was released back into her care. She didn't know what to do with me, so she sent me to live with my, my, um, my aunt girl. She did the best she could. But at age nine, I had started drinking to help me to deal. I kept stealing alcohol. And no matter where I went, foster care, my cousin's house, back to my mother's house, I kept stealing drinks. So by age 15, I was an alcoholic. In order for me to go to school and stay in school, I had to sip on gin and juice all day long. But um, she allowed me to get a part-time job, and this older man would come in there um, because he was the brother to the manager and thought I was cute. And wouldn't mind making me his wife. And he befriended my mother by giving her all the alcohol she could possibly drink. So when it came time for her to sign the marriage license on my behalf, she signed it. I married him. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this older man, because I'm still a young teenager, he was well into his 20s, um, can protect me from all the other bad men of the world. But he became my, my biggest predator. You know, he would stomp me and beat me until he seen blood. And, and, you know, it's just those beatings just went on and on and on. And until he was finished with me and left me in the street, he took my son, our son, as a form of punishment and left me homeless in the streets. And I ended up in the streets for 19 years. And um, as a alcoholic and at age 19, I became a drug addict and everything that goes along with that, ending up getting, ended up being arrested 83 times. It was 66 convictions. But the suffering didn't stop there. You know, for one, being a, a homeless woman, female, you, you often rape a lot, which I got, I've been raped so many times I, I stopped counting them. But also the system was hurting me as well. My first court-ordered drug program for drug counseling raped me. I was being diagnosed mentally, detention centers and giving 
absorbing Ativan and lithium at the same time when the offices were sexy and to me. I mean, just everywhere as I went, people was hurting me. And so, um, and I, you know, where do you go from there, you know? And, and I ended up having children as a result of rape and prostitution. I never knew if my children's father was my, my trick or my rapist. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so, they were taken away from me, rightfully so. Um, but of course, trying to visit them was impossible. And because I was this homeless woman on the streets, I graduated from alcoholic to wino. And um, and I lived like that, not allowed to go in anybody's house, not even to use the bathroom. People would cross the street, not wanting to walk beside me because I was filthy, dirty, drug addict, crackhead, prostitute in their eyes. And um, that's how I lived for 19 years. So um, it was my faith in God, me crying out to God and him saving me, delivering me, and also there was an opportunity to, to have my trauma identified, addressed, and treated. And mm. that's my life And so that's why I'm very passionate about helping people to understand the impact that trauma has on the individual and, um, and, and making sure I'm telling the world about it and training the world. I became the team leader for the National Center for Trauma-Informed Care back in 2008 when SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, um, started funding the National Center, and they brought me in as their team lead, and I led that team for five years. And my job was really to take a team around the country to educate to every state, every system of care, to educate on the impact of trauma. So thank you for um, all that you've shared. I'm just, you know, taking notes on notes on notes. And... um, you know, and I'm just, I'm glad you're here, just here on the planet. Just, you know, thank you for that piece as well. And all of that you have done already. And I want to go to the step where you were talking about, you cried out to God, because I feel like sometimes we go from our, what happened to us to what we're doing now. And I don't want to miss, and I don't want folks to miss some of the critical steps that turned that light on for you, that turned that light switch on, like, whoa, I need to make a change. And I'm also curious about, you know, your belief systems and things like that, because a lot of, you know, we have our stories and then we have the the, the beliefs about who we are because of what we've gone through. So I'd love to unpack some of some core beliefs too, and, and how those were changed. Um, but first I want to go to the point where you were like, okay, like I need a, I, I, I must have a change. What was it? Was it just a, a waking up moment? Like what was, what finally, yeah. What finally made you make that change? Well, you know, I used to tell people, you know, at, at early, very early on in this, this new life, I used to tell people, cause that question will come up all the time. It still does. Yeah. You know, and I used to tell people, well, I didn't want to lose my daughter because the 18 years ago, when I cried out to God in prison, so I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I, um, there were certain things I was used to. I got mm-hmm. used to, like, I was used to being raped. I was. I was actually used to being raped. Um, I would just tell him, hurry up, and then I would wipe the dirt as best I can off my, my me, my body, my clothes. 
put the leaves out my hair and go back to the block. I was used to that. I even got used to drug dealers picking their bats and batting me down and breaking almost every bone in my body for stealing their stash. I got used to that. Okay. I got used to people treating me bad and shaking their head and this guy. I was used to that. But what I couldn't get used to is somebody taking my child out of my arms. Mm. Walking away, never see my children again. I had already lost four. Mm-hmm. And I was pregnant again in the mm-hmm. So I used mm-hmm. to tell people, well, I didn't want to lose my daughter, but I didn't want to lose my other kids either. Mm-hmm. What was different? What yeah. was different is, first of all, God. I brought God into my life. Okay. I God to come into my life. And then I ended up in a treatment program, a system that made it possible. Mm. I've been in 30 some other field treatments that, it, you know, they weren't addressing what really what they needed to address for me to start my healing process, you know, in those traditional programs. So it wasn't just one thing, mm-hmm. collection of things. And I think mm-hmm. for most people, there's never just one thing. It's like, and this happened, you know, for yeah. me, I, 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 you know, I cried out to God and, and my, 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 and I don't call it, it wasn't even, I don't call it prayer. It was such a desperate plea to God. Mm. Screaming, God, please don't let them take this one. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to commit suicide. I'd be successful in committing suicide that time. And so, and then after that, you know, I ended up in a program when, where they started to address my trauma, my addiction, my mental health, and they did something no other program did. I've been pregnant many times, but this program actually said I get to keep my baby with it was still that desire to hold on to my kids and I had that desire for my other kids as well. But yeah. now I it was possible for me to be successful in the language of possibility. So you know for me doing domestic violence work for 20 plus years and also being a survivor of domestic and sexual violence myself, that language of possibility I feel like is something that we don't talk enough about in our work. And so when you when you talk about the work that you're doing now, what do you think is the barrier in people's thinking that change is possible? Uh, you know, and I'm talking about service providers now. Yeah, yeah. So I think mm-hmm. that people First of all, I always tell people, you know, I, I don't I don't go waving the bat saying, oh, you're doing this and you're doing that wrong. For yes. But the they're probably doing it the way that they were trained to do it. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? And the, the fact is that the um, previous training doesn't work. It has not worked. Yes. You know, people are not healing. People are not staying clean. People are ending up back in prison. People are dying. So yes. it's not working. What yes. I tell them is, you know, and I think for the most part, a lot of people do want to they get into this work to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So burned out and they and they continue to see the failure stories and yes. very little success stories. Yes. Start to use give that one size fit all, which yes. you cannot do. And in that one size fit all, they start to they, you know, and, and they take the stigma with them and and they take all these things with them in, in this work. 
And and a lot of them have their own, like you just said, you've been doing this work for a very long time, yet you're a survivor yourself. That's right. So many people that's in this work that has not healed from their own trauma. That's right. They're doing this work and they're being triggered and they're causing more harm with the people that they because they're triggered. And That's so, right. and and so, I think that there that is, it. and I think that there's just some people that truly believe that nobody changes. That, but you know, it's funny because the reason why my story has been so powerful, I think, is because as much as I've been through, and you know, and when you think about me having eighty zero arrest, sixty six conviction, and being on the streets for twenty years and so cracked, mentally ill. You know, people, even though they should not, because you never should give up on an individual, but long time ago they gave up because they couldn't get past the way that I looked in their office or the way I looked when I got arrested and, you know, the mm-hmm. justice record and, and things like that. And they start to judge you by what they read and not the fact that you're a human being and all things, you know, that it's possible. You know, as long as somebody got breath, you know, it, it hope is possible. And so um, they give up easily. And I tell people, so I, I, I do, I said this one thing in my presentation too. I tell people when a paramedic is called to someone in medical distress, the first thing they do is check for signs of life. Mm-hmm. And even if there's no signs of life, they start to work to resuscitate that person with no signs of life. And they do it, they do it tirelessly. Why do we give up so easy on people that obviously got breath in their body? You know, mm-hmm. and and it's, it's just the, the system give up on you. And I always tell them, if you providing services and you don't even believe in them, how can you expect them to believe in themselves? You know, so. I do know. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I say now when I'm talking with advocates and thankfully a lot of my work, I've been able to do a lot of healing and wellness work with advocates. Cause I feel like I speak, you know, I speak the language, they're me, I'm them. And one of the things that I really believe is that we can only take people so far. We can't take people where we haven't gone ourselves. And if we don't, if we feel powerless at work because of whatever reason, trauma that, that we've experienced outside or even in the movement, it's really hard to have that patience and that compassion when we're not experiencing it ourselves in our own life. And so thank you for, you know, even bringing that piece up. I want to talk about, you know, this is a spirituality podcast. It's spirituality, politics, (laughs) and culture. Um, I want to talk about your faith. Was this something that you always had? Was it, I want, yeah, just whatever you want to say about that. I want to hear all about it. <laughs> you know, I, I always believed there was a God. I okay. always believed that, you know. Okay. I've always, I've, I've never questioned that, you know. I, I It was that when, when I, so growing up, I grew up in, you know, a very um, dysfunctional, alcoholic, abusive, neglectful household. There was, then she wasn't talking about Jesus. That's what she was. We didn't go to church, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But when I went to, when after foster care, family members took us, took each of each each of us to their homes, and my my um, older cousin chose me, and she had three daughters around my age, and she would send me, she would send us to Sunday school and church, 
oftentimes she didn't even go. She would just send us because her father was gone. We would always go with him. Mm-hmm. Even then, you know, at a young age, I'm, I'm thrown into the church and my cousins probably went ever since they were very little. So they understood, you know, how it goes in church. I didn't, but they would stand up and they would say that uh, our father prayer and, and the Lord, you know, the Lord's prayer. And, and I, um, I would just stand up there and move my lips because I didn't know the word. And then at age 12, they said, okay, you got to get baptized. And I said, why? <laughs> what is, first of all, so it was in this, in this church, baptism wasn't explained really. It's kind of like you're 12. So when you're 12, you get baptized, you know, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, like, okay. So I got baptized and they told me. And then of course I end up back with my mother where I end up back um, in my mother's home with no church. And then I got married to an older man. Now what's really interesting about my, my, my first husband was he was in the church. He was the, he was the most eligible bachelor in this church and everybody, he was good looking, he was tall and he um he was on the men's choir. He was still the altar boy, which was weird to me because he's the way he would wear this little the white coat that didn't even fit him no more to light the candle. <laughs> but so that was my second understanding of church was this man beats me and then he goes to church. Yes. And everybody loved him. Yes. So it's me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because he go to church. He, if he beat me, then I, I guess that I'm supposed to get beaten because he, he know God, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So that was my, my, my second introduction to the church, to, to, to faith, um, which was a horrible, you know, experience because, at, you know, on the weekends he took me to clubs. I wasn't even old enough to go and he would dress me up like a doll, doll baby and set me on the bar just to wait for a man to, to um, hit on me. And then he would zap out on the man and, and me, you know, and it just, it was a horrible experience. Okay, so he leaves, I end up in the streets. And then I ended up in prison. And then I met this white lady named Kathy. She, um, she would come, she came to visit me because she read an article about me. She remembered that I used to come and get Pampers and, and, and used clothes for my son. And she she came and she asked me, could she pray with me? And I was like, well, anybody else visiting me, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah, you know, I guess, so take your time. Say one of them long ones y'all did. <laughs> and she would pray. She would pray with me. And you know, and then she told me one day, I'm going to go to court and ask the judge to release you to my kids, release you to me and my husband and my church. And I'm like, lady, good luck with that. <laughs> she was this middle class white lady with red hair. And I love my Kathy. Kathy, I love Kathy. She's killing my life. But <laughs> wait a minute. How old were you? I, I, I think I missed that. Um, this was, I was around 22. 22. Okay. 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 Around 22. 
So, you oh my know, gosh. Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. She, but she came to court. Yeah. She came to court, you, you know. Yeah. White people suck when they make their mind up. Oh, God. <laughs> when they said they going to court and tell the judge something. They going to court and tell the judge something. And she did. She went oh, my God. Why the public pretender? Because you know they're not public defenders. They're public pretenders. Ooh. You said public pretend. <laughs> My God, not public pretender. That's what they are for people like me because you don't see them before you go to court. They don't know anything about you. Wow. The only defense is your age, your name, your age, how many kids you have, and your race. That's the only defense that they have for you. And oh, so wow. Public My public pretender was there. And so, so my public pretender told the judge, uh, well, somebody's here to speak on behalf of Miss Kane. Yeah. So Kathy got up there and she told the judge, you know, we come to know Tomir and she goes to say that. And we, me and my husband and my church wants to send her to a program. Mm. You know, so the judge looked at her and said, so you want me to release her to your care for you to send her? And he asked, how do you know her? And she was like, oh, well, we met her at the outreach center. And and, and the judge said, okay. And he did it. He wow. Did it. He did it. He released me to Kathy. She took me home to her. They wouldn't release me from jail until she, um, they wouldn't release me from jail until she came, she was there at the jail to pick me up. She picked me up. She took me to her home. Put me in her daughter's bed. Her daughter's already out the house, grown woman. And she, they sent me to a Christian program called Teen Challenge in Ohio. Mm-hmm. The airplane sent me there. Now, mind you, in this program, the only thing we did, again, was pray and read the Bible. No real understanding. Yeah. Not catching on the things that happened to me. Yes. So I'm in this program and they, Jesus, 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 but they're truly not even telling me about grace. They're not telling me about the possibility of being set free. They, so they would tell us it's, it's, it's time to read the Bible. And we would go to our rooms and get on the bed and read about how much sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I slept well. I don't okay. know. Now here's on the Bible and that's what made me sleep well or whatever it was. So I was it was a good, good nap. It was always a good nap. Okay. And, so, and so anyway, so but Kathy, her her unconditional love always stuck with me. Mm. So 18 years ago, even though I messed up, I left the program. Got, and not only did I leave, but I talked another girl into leaving with me. Uh oh. <laughs> Well, because it wasn't working, though. It doesn't sound like it was. It wasn't. So we end up coming to Maryland. Her family ended up coming to get her, but thank God, because I had that girl on the block and everything was terrible. Uh oh. And so here I was, you know, again, that was a. But I remember Kathy's love for me, regardless of who I was. Yeah. So I mean, she was, she was my real example of God's love. Yeah. So when I cried out to God, I was crying out to Kathy's God, not my husband's God, you know, even though, you know, I'm, I'm just saying it, even though yes. they yes. worship the same God, but experience were different with their, with, with God, with them. 
So I wanted Kathy's God, that loving God that would take a prisoner, a prisoner she really don't know, out of prison, put me in her daughter's bed and send me off, try to get me help. So when I cried out to God, I cried out with, with the seed she planted. Yes. And sincerely knowing that God can help me because he has sent Kathy that time. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so that's when my faith started. And, um, and, and I, it, because I used to play a Christian all the time. I knew mm -hmm. I would play a Christian. I would go court with, with rosary around my neck. I ain't Catholic. I had the rosary on. I even learned how to, to read the rosary. I, <laughs> hallelujah. Every time I'm in the courtroom with my, with my New Testament little Bible in my pocket, hallelujah. Judge, I'm better. You know, and mm -hmm. um, my, 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 you know, the, the, you know, the rose, they give them rosary out in prison. And so, I knew how to pretend to be a Christian, but I didn't even know what a Christian was, and I certainly didn't know how to be one. Yeah. And so that's when it all changed for me, when I sincerely, I was in a sincere, open heart to receive um, the Lord as my Savior, and everything changed for me. Everything changed. Everything. From that moment on. From that moment on. And so are you working with the faith community also? I, yeah, I just came back. Um, so I do a lot of work. I do a deliverance tour, first of all. I do a deliverance tour. Okay. And my deliverance tour is all faith-based. And what okay. I do is I go to the communities. I do, like, um, I have one coming up in Dallas next in, in June, beginning of June. So usually what I do is I go Friday and you know, I talk to like the leaders of the church. Thirty morning, I want to, I want the leaders of the church and some community members that are providers. I do a mini, I um, I develop a six-hour trauma-informed care training, mm -hmm. hands-on strength and relationship training. So I do a summary of that because I really want them to understand how the strength and relationship with the trauma survivors in their congregation in their community, and then at night. We open it up to like everybody community. I say, get chicken, <laughs> mm -hmm. offer some food. They're gonna come, and we do this huge. That I, you know, do a whole deliverance. So I used to bring a song script with me, and and you know, and and then I tell you know, I get up there and I just talk about God's deliverance and all of that. So, but also, um, I just came back um, thirty days from. Michigan, I do a lot of work with the rescue, gospel rescue missions in North America. Okay. Because um, I sat on the board. I used to sit on the board of directors for the membership um, company they belong to. Um, and so I just got back to help with their charity bit to keep the gospel rescue mission up and running and things like that. So, yeah, I do. And what do you think? I always, this is one of the questions I always like to ask people. Um what did you have to say no to in order to follow this bigger yes, right, of your life's calling? So what, what, what did you have to say no to to answer this calling? Um, well, you know, the calling was, it happened so quickly. Mm. And, and, you know, it's God, because it wasn't me, it was God. And yes. And I, God, you know, I always say he's a great coach. He will yes. remove people from the field that's not yes. supposed to be there and put the right people on the field for you to meet that goal. Yes. But really, God, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the, 
the only the sacrifice that I the biggest sacrifice that I I had made was oftentimes I had to leave my daughter. Mm. And um and you know, but God took care of that because I um when I started this journey, I was working for the um program that I that helped me. Mm. And I was telling my mentor there, who was the founder of the program, about Kathy. And she said, you should call Kathy because I never forgot her phone number. I just wouldn't use it because I was so ashamed that, you know, all her help and not getting better. And so she, I, she said, you should call and tell her how well you do. So mm. I called her number and she answered and she started crying. And she said, I, she, I told her that I traveled all over the place and I'm speaking and I'm doing this. I'm going on part of a film and, and all of that. And I said, well, what do you do now? And she said, oh, I work as a nanny. So I hired her to do Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So even God brought her back in my life. Oh. I was, there's no way I could have done the work and leave my daughter as much as I did have. I had Kathy in my life to, to, because I knew she loved Alanda. I knew she loved Jesus first. And yeah. I knew that, you know, Alanda's in good care. So Alanda, she's like Alanda grandmother now her and her husband they just they're family yeah to attend the church that she attended you know and we just family and um mm -hmm. you know landra has passed you know care now um you know nanny care but it's just been an amazing journey to have her back in my life right now she has cancer and um and i i you know god is He's faithful. Let's just say that he's faithful, and um, and that's that's the one thing I think the biggest sacrifice I had to make because there were so many times I cried myself to sleep in hotels. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, missing my daughter, mm -hmm. and you know, but my daughter always been to a private school. If I wanted to pull her out to travel with me, I was able to. They were okay. for her work, you know. But you know, it still was a, a huge sacrifice. That was mm -hmm. that was the only thing I think that, you know. That was it. Yeah. And how is your relationship with your other children? Have you been able to reunite with them? Yes. Yeah, so I have four taken away. I um I have reunited with three. Okay. And the only one that's that I have not reunited with is my oldest daughter. And she's just not ready yet. But she knows mm -hmm. that I, you know, I'm seeking that reunion. Mm -hmm. She was raised, she was adopted with my son. So okay. I had a relationship with him. So he'll send him pictures to send me and then ask for pictures of me to send him for the physical. Okay. 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 And so you mentioned a film that you were a part of. So I'd love for you to talk about that and the other exciting projects that uh, that you're working on, what, what, what you can share. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So my first film I was in was called Behind Closed Doors, and no, it's not a porn. Okay. <laughs> no, it's called, but it is a porn called Behind Closed Doors, but this one is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that, right. If you're going to look at that one, you're not going to see me. But yes. Behind closed doors. Um, and it's about four women that have been through the psychiatric system and um how they kept re traumatizing us. Mm. Um, that film did well. I traveled with that film and it did very well. 
Mm-hmm. So out of that, people start asking me to come and speak. I, I tell everybody, I n- have never marketed myself to speak. I have years where I spoke up to 200 some, 230 times a year. Never marketed myself. It was always somebody saying, you got to get to your pain, you got to get to your pain. So when behind closed, well, closed doors started to circulate and I will go to some of the, where they were showing it, you know, we will have standing room only. Like if we were showing it in before lunch, they, people will talk about it at lunch. So when we went to our sessions after lunch, people that weren't supposed to be in that session was coming in and sitting on the floor. It was just, it's God. It just, it was, it just, it was incredible. It was insane. And so and from that, it came so overwhelming with the, with the request for me to speak. I went to the producer and the, the producer of Behind Closed Doors, who she now is one of my closest friends. Um, I went to her and I was like, Gloria, you know, can you just film me doing my, I have a presentation coming up in Maryland. Can you film it so I can kind of package it and send it to people so I won't have to travel? So that's where Healing Means, the film about my life. This film is in 60 different countries now. We, mm. we premiered Healing Means in 2010. It is still at one product. It is wow. still my num- It is the only film that the government recommends to train systems of care on trauma-informed care. And so that exploded. So instead of me not traveling as much, it tripled my travel. Yes. And um, and so we went from that. And then I, my book was released in the 14th, same title. Healing Name. Got it. Neen was my street, my nickname. My middle name is Deneen. So everybody called me Neen. I keep Neen in a lot of things. Like my nonprofit is called Neen Cares. Um, I have a, um, you know, a lot of things. Neen is in everything. It's a, okay. Neen a lot. Because I want people to see once upon a time when they see me, they go, here come, here come dirt, cracky, um, funky Neen. But if you Google me now, powerful, amazing, inspiring. You know, mm-hmm. those type words. So I want people to see this is the mean that you're talking about, that you wanting to come to your state. Mean, you know, um yeah. I want people to see the power and 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 people changing and the possibility. So so um now my I have I just had another film that we just finished that we are pitching called Walking Through Bullets. Walking Through Bullets, uh, I'm the EP on executive producer on it. Um, it's as a, as a result of community violence, the men that boys, boys become. And we shot this in Philadelphia. Um, and it um, and we use real gang members in the film. Um, so that's it. We just finished that. Um, I have my story, There's Hope. Um, is being um, pitched as well, and um, my prayer. I let get this film done. Why you know why my Kathy is alive and well to be there, premiere night because she's in it, and I want to honor. Right. I Absolutely. Um, and then I have another film called um, The Unseen Village. It's in post production. That is a film I went in 2018. I went to Nigeria to film about the girls returning to the villages after being kidnapped. By mm. 
and the trauma they experienced and, and, and what it's like for them now. Um, um, and then I have a TV series um, called The Advocate. I, and, and this is going to be an amazing, amazing series. I can't talk much on that because it's really higher up on consideration right now. But yeah. it, what I want people to get from this is that um, as a result of untreated, unaddressed, and um, unidentified trauma, what can happen? So it's a murder trauma series. Um, yeah, and it's very powerful, very powerful. Right now, I'm working on uh, I'm working on another comedy as well with my writer. Um, so you know, I continue to all my content, all my content has a purpose. It has a purpose. It's nothing is without a purpose in my life. Um, my new my newest book is called Relationship After Trauma. I call it the Rat Guide, um, but it's a guidebook that you will do with a journal to help. Um, those experience trauma to, uh, to you know, to obtain some survival tools um, to to have healthy relationships after trauma, and uh, so I just continue to do things. I I have a um, skincare line because one of the things that used to always um, get me was even though I was healing on the inside, my my skin I had so many scars from shooting up from being beaten, from being hurt. I had scars all over my body. And I was a reminder of the trauma experience, the assaults, the, the victim, I mean, the um, violence side I um, experienced. So I started to mix all this stuff together and clear up my skin, and it worked. So I worked with a laboratory to create my own formula. Um, and I guess if you start a skincare line, you might as well open up a store. <laughs> so I, opened, <laughs> I went to the retail store. <laughs> And my first store, I opened up in a city where I was homeless for 19 years. So I was trying to make a point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those are the things that I do. Um, I own a training company. It's an international, it's a global company. That a training company. I own a speakers bureau called Voices of Trauma Speakers Bureau, where we create brands and help people get on the circuit. I have my own publishing house. Um, I'm a publisher as well because I had such a hard time with the publisher that yeah. I, that I went through that I didn't want people to go do what I went through. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I, we started a publishing house and, um, and I had my own production company purpose for entertainment. And um, so, yeah, so I, uh, I'm very blessed that God give me vis- visions and I'm able to go, you know, get out there and, um, and get it happen make, and pray to God that he'll allow it to happen. I love it. I love it. And so, so with all of your, the empire building that you're doing, um, what is the legacy that you want to leave? My legacy that I, I try to leave, of course, is about hope, you know, mm. no matter what it looks like, no matter what it looks like, what it feels like, that there's always hope, you know, but for me, my legacy, I want my legacy to be about not what I had, but what I gave. You know, and um, that's important to me. I don't want my success measured by what I have, like where I live and what I drive and all of that, or mm-hmm. what I wear. I wanted to be what I give of my time and what the things I'm doing, like creating certain things to bring awareness and, and you know, and to get out there. Like with my nonprofit, it's we provide free services to trauma survivors. And um, just continue to create things to bring awareness and, and help people to feel safe 
to change communities and um, and help people to build their lives. Yeah, a shade of that. And what would you recommend to young people, or you know anybody that's that's coming behind you? Um, that you know, first of all, give yourself a break. You <laughs> <laughs> have to learn that the hard way. You yeah. know, everything don't happen in a day. Yes. Um, I um, you know. I, I I finally realized God is God. <laughs> mm-hmm. His, if I'm praying to God that His will be done, I need to be I need to be willing to wait for His timing because it's His timing is best. And I yeah. think if I can get one information, one one point to anybody is wait on God because it is more than worth it. And and in your wait, continue to. To, to move, continue to believe. So my favorite scripture in the Bible, Exodus, one of my favorite readings is when Moses, when Moses and the Israelites get to the Red Sea, they turned around and they could see the chariots from Egypt facing them down. And in the front, there's this sea that they just don't, there's no way they can get to, to the sea. They all they see is what can't happen, and they look back and re, and they see that they should be. They told Moses, "You should have left us in Egypt to die with dignity." You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. they, they they were willing to go back to their past because it was more comfortable. Is what they knew mm-hmm. before. But, but what God to when Moses cried to God, God, what I'm supposed to do with your people? And God asked Moses, "Why are you crying out to me?" Just tell them to move. Keep moving. Don't worry about what's in front of you. Your stumbling block, the lack of the lack of funding, and the people that's against you, and you, and all those things that we seem to to allow the enemy to remind us of, and yes. all these things that we're not. Yes. That's the point. It's, yes. it's when we do something in a natural, we get natural results. But if we're yeah. trusting in God, we're trusting in the supernatural. Yes. So all those things that we sing in front of us, those stumbling blocks that, oh, I can't do it. I don't have no education. I don't have no funds to do this. Who's going to believe me? I don't have no credibility. My credit score is blah, 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 blah. Yes. All yes. these things, instead of just saying, I trust God. I believe in what he said he would do for me. And I'm just going to move. And, and that red seed don't matter to me because he created that seed. It's not too big for him. And so, you know, that's my favorite, favorite, favorite reading. And, and no matter what it looks like, whatever wall it may be, or whatever I think it is, I, I keep moving because I know that anything that's in front of me, God is more powerful to deal with, you know? And um, so, yeah. Whew, I'm like, I got to start having a bell. I got a bell, but I'm, I'm going to have to start bringing my bell to the podcast. I felt like I needed to start ringing a bell. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, such confirmation. Thank you. Thank you so much. So um, how can people get a hold of you? The to best way to best do all things. Get a hold of me is to go to TamiraKane.com. Uh-huh. My website and even on my website there's a chat box and if you go between if you between nine and five 
I, I believe now I believe my California team just joined now, so I don't know what time of day that they actually um, okay. overseeing it because I think it switched to California. Um, but anyway, if you go in the chat box and you go, you know, say whatever you want to say, somebody should get back to you. If it's, if it's past work hours, it'll be the next day. But also, you can go to contact. And if you want to contact me, if you want to contact me through my, my publishing house, Speakers Bureau, through the production company, me speaking, or just, or the nonprofit, or just others. Just like somebody just, just make comments or, or tell me about a family member, whatever. So, and if it's personal, they would, they would reach it out to me. They'll forward it directly to me. And if okay. you somebody that's going to start telling your story, that's not for us, that's for Tamir. Or if, but anything else, my team will be there. Um, to answer your questions. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. I know how busy you are. So just the fact that you took the time to have this conversation, I feel blessed. And I just want to affirm that the people that need to hear this, that this message will just go out and out and out and out and across and people will be touched and edified and, and moved and inspired <laughs> in the same way that I have been since our first conversation. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you again, Tanir, so, so much. And I'm so excited for whatever is coming next. I appreciate I really do appreciate you having me. Thank you and um, be blessed. Thank you so much. All right, folks, this is Zoe Flowers signing out and I will talk with you soon. Bye. Bye.